I say uh, mean things about Republicans in this. You have a prepared statement? I, Spencer Snyder, <laughs> am coming out <laughs> in opposition to the Republican Party officially. That's really incumbent upon you to edit this together to make it look like we're not stupid. Okay, That's so the, f- the episode opener. <laughs> yeah. Hey, welcome to Adagio for Things. Hi. We're your hosts. I'm Michael Vince. I'm Will Stackpole. I'm Spencer Snyder. This week, I get to sit down for what is my first interview on the show with composer Jason Eckhart. We cover a pretty good distance today. Jason is very articulate and insightful. Uh, He speaks refreshingly candidly about not just uh, politics and music, but careers in music and and music institutions. Uh, I wish we could have gotten more but I guess that just means we'll have to have them on again. Then we're all going to sit down and talk about music used in campaigns, campaign music. That's going to be in... Election day is almost here. It is, so yeah. vote when that happens. We're going to tell you to vote like 50 billion times please, during this. Please, vote. Depending, you, depending on who you're voting for, vote. Yeah, if you're going to vote Republican, stay home. It's cool. Don't forget to check out our Spotify <laughs> playlist for the episode. It features all we the music that's been listed over the Spotify. <laughs> we account. do. We will. We will we slave <laughs> over the hot Spotify for hours. <laughs> also, don't forget to subscribe and rate and share the podcast with others. Sharing is caring. Share it with everybody. Should we give the audience like a picture of what we're doing, like where, where we're sitting right now? We mean like what's physically happening around yeah, us. It's Halloween. We're we're leaning into the. The festivities of the season. Michael is wrapped in a brilliant bouquet of orange lights. A spooky black light. And uh, Michael's dressed in a spooky lion costume. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The ensemble is, is, there's many layers. It's a onesie. It's a, yeah. <laughs> it's a lion onesie. I just thought it Wrapped in clear. orange Christmas <laughs> That's a tale, too. We got the lights off. We're going to tell spooky stories about what happens if you don't vote. And uh, and we'll touch on music. So in the, sp- we did- in the spirit of um, uh, scaring people into voting, we're going to talk about music and political ca- campaigns. Is that what we're doing? That's what we're doing. Is it Spencer? What are we? Oh, leader of the roundtable. Yeah, because I know our original idea was to do... The, every, every season you have someone getting a cease and desist letter for using Mm -hmm. an artist's music. And it's almost always a conservative who's being reprimanded by an artist, and we should get into that. I've found only two instances of Democrats being uh, called out. One of them was uh, Cindy Lauper, who... Cindy Lauper is a Democratic politician. Cindy Lauper didn't like. Her. Did someone use the Goonies theme? Are we back on Goonies. <gasps> it What's is the a Goonies, Goonies theme. There's what? Yeah, Goonies, good enough. Cindy for Lauper me. Did, the, did the Goonies theme. Oh really? Yeah. Goonies. It's a callback to episode one. one. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. we've come so far. Yeah, I know. For episode four. Yeah. Um, <laughs> whatever. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Well, yes. Yeah, so no, Cindy Lauper, I think she had a cease and desist letter sent to the DNC. The, the DNC in 2012 used the song True Colors in an attack against Romney. But Cindy Lauper... <laughs> Big Romney fan? No. She actually just didn't want her song being used. She said that Romney didn't need her song uh, in order to discredit himself. Oh, oh. <laughs> Ouch. Or that, yeah, 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 no, no. Of well, my he, song. Had, he had binders full of women to choose from anyway, so. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> that's a joke from way back. I forgot that's about a, Remember that? that when that was something yeah. that could really ruin someone's campaign? I, th- I think there were there was one other instance of a Democrat getting getting called out, but it's it's always it's always the Republicans. It's there, always yeah, the Republicans. I, I have a list of of things I found, and it, it is almost all Republicans who who end up getting asked to not have their music played anymore. Well, what's the, we're going to talk about the day history of like? And then you say that like it used to be written specifically. Like, do we want to start? Well, some of the choices that people get called out for and are asked by artists not to use are the most tone deaf things you can imagine. I don't know why they would even want to use these songs. Like this is someone no one's ever heard of. There's a guy named Charlie Crist. He was running for Senate in Florida mm-hmm. uh, a while back and he got in trouble with the talking heads cause he wanted to use their song road to nowhere. <laughs> Wait, what? The song is called Road to Nowhere. Yes. Why you want that tied to your political campaign? I don't know. I feel like the Talking Heads were kind of doing him a favor. Yeah. There was also uh, Ross Perot used um, used the song Crazy, Crazy by who's the country artist? Charles Barkley. No. <laughs> it was Patsy oh, Klein. Okay. okay. Thank, Thank you, researcher you. on the spot. So we've gotten to a kind of a weird place with campaign songs where, first of all, there's like, it seems like there's two different types of music that, excuse me, there's like three different types of things. There's campaign songs, which on a rare occasion, a song will become like really identified with a politician's whole campaign. Like Obama signed, sealed, delivered. That was kind of, that became, towards the end, it kind of became a thing. Yeah. But then more commonly, there's music that gets used in campaign ads which for a lot of reasons uh, is usually written for the campaign ad and meant to sound like something else, which is actually where a lot of the kind of classically infused music comes in because it it's really good at instilling either hope or desperate fear in people. And then uh, <laughs> fear, please. the last kind uh, is like stuff that's used at campaign rallies. That's the stuff that I've found that's kind of interesting. So that's interesting that you've broken campaign music into three categories because I have broken campaign music into two categories. There, it really comes down. There are two distinct, let's say epochs of campaign music. And that is campaign songs that have the candidate's name in the title and campaign songs that do not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think so. Oh. I wish they would make it a comeback because I feel like we could do a lot with the. Well, the, yeah. there are there are there are some, and there's one in particular I'm I'm really excited to get into, um, and that is Ru- Rudy Giuliani has some has some gems. Oh, um, oh so uh, we can't his name. Some examples: um, Get on the raft with Taft. 
Which, 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 which again, which, tone deaf. W- r- right. If there's a raft you don't want to be on, it's Taft. Oh, a raft with Taft, Taft. is will, is a death sentence you for sure. Will drown. Harding, you're the man for us. Written by Al Jolson. Um, really? That's kind of cool. We're we're ready for Teddy again. Which the only way that song rhymes is if you put an apostrophe or if you put a comma after Teddy, and then it sounds sarcastic. We're ready for Teddy. Again. Again. <laughs> We're ready for Teddy again. I guarantee that's how it went. That is definitely how that goes. <laughs> when he was on the Bull Moose party. But Teddy, he's got a mustache. <clears throat> I think that he's the one with the mustache, right? I can't remember. <laughs> oh my God, you've just invented yeah. Teddy the Musical. Teddy the Musical. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah. If we don't take the house, we're all going to die. Yeah. <laughs> What were we? I on? called, uh, you know, I I called Ted Cruz's office. I made three Cruz calls today, and they're not and nothing. And what? Nothing? I didn't get anything. Did you get a hold of somebody? Or I did you just, no, they ignored I us. could have tried much harder. Oh, but we didn't talk to them. And it we was didn't their talk fault. to them, and it was their fault. They were ignoring us. Yes. Oh, Cruz, Ted they're, Cruz, enemy of the show. Mm-hmm. They're just probably shaking in the booth. Yeah. They know if they ex- they'll be exposed if we. They're 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 refusing uh, to talk to the press. Right. We now. we mm-hmm. reached out for comments. Are we the press? They didn't get back to us. We're not the press. We're not the press. We're the media. We're barely that. We're the media. We're media. We're we're, a, we're, are a, a we're media. A media. <laughs> the Cruz campaign is refusing to talk to a media. That's about <laughs> what, what's the singular of get. media? Medium. The, sing- the, the cruise the campaign's is- refusing to talk to a medium. <laughs> Sounds like there's a woman with long nails from Long Island who's going, oh, okay, here's right. what you got to do. You have to reach out more uh-huh. in Houston. I know, I know Beto's probably just going to be like some middle-of-the-road centrist like Obama was. Oh, man. Let's unravel. I have some Actually, I have something really interesting about mm-hmm. Ted Cruz. Um, this is from a, f- a few years ago when he and Marco Rubio were kind of duking it out for second in the primaries somebody actually asked both of them at a town hall like what their favorite kind of music is which tells you a lot about the kind of hard-cutting news that was going on in the coverage of the right wing during uh presidential primaries but anywho so cruz said uh that he used to he used to he used to lack rock music and then after i shit you not after 9-11, the way the rock music community handled 9-11 just wasn't that great, but country really had a great message. So ever since, I just listen to country. He worked 9-11 into his answer? <laughs> listen to the country. Like, you can only listen. You can pick one. You can't listen to more than one genre, and it has to also be supported by your base. He's lambasting the rock community's terrible response to 9-11 and not the government? Oh, so anyway... After Ted Cruz's answer, Marco Rubio gets up and someone says, so we've heard that you like electronic dance music or EDM. (laughs) EDM. He he was like, yeah, I I actually, I do. But you don't have anything to worry about because there's no bad lyrics. Sometimes they even sample country and sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) So I also like country I also like country. But you don't have to, the lyrics aren't bad and sometimes there are no lyrics, so you don't have to worry about bad lyrics. Like, this is a, how weirdly repressed are you? Let, let me ask you a question. So let me strange. ask you a question. Have you ever seen Marco Rubio 
and Ricky Martin in the same room together? You have not. We don't know that they're not where, the same person. Wait, where are you going? <laughs> what? Marco Rubio is Ricky Martin. <laughs> Doesn't really talk about his no, wife that much. If I pull this picture up and said, hey, did you check out this new photo of Mark Rubio? You would say, that's not Mark Rubio. That is Ricky Martin. I would say, I would say... They oh, there is, is no way you would like, use Is that 2016 Republican candidate Ricky Martin? <laughs> Rick, Ricky Marco Rubio? Ricky Marco Rubio. Also, also, Ted Cruz and same initials, Trey Cool from Green Day. Also the same person. You've never seen them in the same room together? No. No. To really round out this discussion of lookalikes, have you seen the, the thing first where famous one? People are claiming that Kid Rock is just really um, beautiful. Doctor Phil trying to dress like Kid Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! Yeah, I saw that post on the internet, and I was like, "This is the truest thing I've ever seen in my entire life." Please, if you're listening, Google a photo of Kid Rock now, and just imagine <laughs> Doctor Phil trying to dress like Kid Rock. And that's Kid Rock. If, if, if your teenage son isn't listening to you, maybe maybe it's because he kicks too much ass. <laughs> d- d- does he rock too hard? But but vote inexplicably conservatively. I want you to try. Counter to all of my rebellious opinions. All right, listen here. My- Why don't you just ball with the ball and call me in the morning? <laughs> okay, we got to get back on music. Yeah. This is ridiculous. Well, this was music related. So anyway, Rubio likes EDM because he doesn't have to worry about the lyrics being bad. Like being too offensive for right. his sensitive like, ears. Yeah, my, my, exactly. My it's like Mike Pence not ears. having to worry about leaving the room, or his wife leaving the room when there's another woman present or something. The same, it's the same weird, like, puritanical, weird, like, bizarre. bizarreness. Yeah. Getting onto our core topic of our, of our podcast. One of the really interesting things about campaign music has been there's not a ton of use uh, of actual classical music. Uh, but we'll get to the actual uses in recent history, which are kind of fascinating. But there have been a lot of like very interesting knockoffs, <laughs> which really started um, back with Nixon. Alex Ross has all, a bunch of little articles about this, where basically he started using this Aaron Copeland kind of ripoff music mm-hmm. in these ads i mean nixon through reagan we're dealing with a lot of anti-communist sentiment a lot of fear-mongering and that kind of stuff so he's using aaron copeland's music basically a knockoff of appalachian spring that kind of stuff mm-hmm. to build this the most famous one of those campaigns is it's morning in america those ones for to get people really revved up but what's funny when you think about it is uh, aaron copeland was a, a gay Jewish communist. And not only that, but uh, not during that era, but later on, Romney actually used fanfare for the common man for his campaign, which is a piece that's literally about communism and written (laughs) as like a tribute to the Communist Party candidate for president of the United States in the 1940s. I I did not know that. Yeah. Beautiful. It's amazing. The lack of of awareness is astounding. Just that's, just research. That's incredible that 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 music has become so iconically American. Not just American, but like <clears throat> yeah. It's like the fucking Marlboro man. 
Yeah, it's pretty mean. The other funny thing about so some great. of those old Nixon ads is that the flip side of the Copeland stuff, where it's showing, you know, inspiring, uh, picturesque landscapes and happy people with jobs and all that stuff is the fear mongering side, which is like a hard left turn in the middle of the ad. Like all we'll of a sudden a they're right showing turn. like destitute people struggling <laughs> in a factory with like three fingers. And what? it's like playing like Schoenberg piano music. Actually, like it's really, it's this atonal, like weird piano music in the background and the footage cuts to black and white. And <laughs> this is the same ad? It's the same <laughs> ad. It's so weird. Like we were so pliable back then. In the 70s, our brains would just go, oh, yeah, we're here now. <laughs> Ten seconds later, we're listening. Okay, we're here I guess now. we do have to worry about the other guy in the White House. It's it's so it's so funny that so much atonal music, like the, a general audience's relationship with atonal music is only that it sounds like scary music. Mm-hmm. And I think to a certain degree, classical musicians sort of embrace that. They're using like a you Yoda to, train of logic. Out. No, Fear what's, leads to what's anger. the um, <laughs> anger leads to sadness? Sadness um, means you're deep. No, like like Pierrot Lunaire's <laughs> popularity was basically based on the fact that it was mm. it was comical and crazy sounding, and um, but wait, really? Yeah, I never knew that. It, I mean, it's about it's about um, you know like a How crazy clown, yeah. And uh, it's kind of surrealist. It yeah. makes it makes so the musical style makes sense, and it was it was popular. I mean, what's also interesting is like American politics isn't the first time that this kind of stuff was used to really manipulate people in real time, along with visuals. Mm-hmm. Disclaimer: I'm not making a direct comparison between the Republican Party in American history and Nazi Germany. I'm just saying this is another time this was used. Uh, but I am when, <laughs> but actually a lot of propaganda in Germany, first half of the 20th century was using a lot of classical music to get people like extra revved up because it has a more profound effect on your emotions mm-hmm. moment to moment to moment. Mm-hmm. So you can really make those kinds of hard left turns from inspiration to fear to uh, empowerment or being upset or whatever. Mm. Um, so they were using Carl Orff and Wagner and that kind of stuff. Things that were homegrown music that also got people feeling a lot of strong emotions. Well, yeah. I mean, campaign music has always been propagandistic side note. The only, the only reason we don't call it propaganda is because Sigmund Freud's nephew who sort of revolutionized PR in America realized that propaganda had been too closely tied with the Nazis. So he opted to call it public Public relations. relations, So there's no difference between public relations and propaganda. It's just that propaganda had been a a tainted term. It's just kind of shifted now from Wagner underscoring Mm -hmm. the propaganda or Shostakovich or something like that in Russia. Now we've got a misappropriation of born in the USA Which also, looping back, Springsteen is pissed about every time it gets used because it's literally about dissatisfaction with life in America and what the government's having you do. (laughs) Meanwhile, dipshits (laughs) like McCain, God rest his soul. And don't, uh, okay, don't, you're baiting, don't, don't, don't rest rest his soul, don't rest his soul. (laughs) 
a bunch of campaigns actually have fallen into this trap of using Born in the USA. But okay. anyway, um, so you you bring up Bruce Springsteen. We should take a second to talk about the 1984 campaign because in the history of campaign music, there are a few campaigns that need to be highlighted. 84 is one of them. Okay. I want to read a couple of a couple of quotes from George F. Will. So I think he was, if he wasn't an advisor to Reagan, he was friends with an advisor or something. Okay. Mm. But he was a Washington Post columnist. And, and generally speaking, he's credited with introducing Bruce Springsteen to Reagan. So he was at, he was at a Bruce Springsteen show, and he's a conservative. And he's like 40 at the time when he's writing this. And he is so impressed that in 1984, this guy can get up on stage, Springsteen, and play three hours of music without a smidgen of androgyny. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what this guy sees. He says, there is not a smidgen of androgyny in Springsteen. That's who, the biggest hunk of man meat I've ever seen. <laughs> what is that? Oh my what God. Is, his, I've his, never seen such an Adonis... <laughs> His chest is like a barrel of apples. Um, I just want to lick him and repent. And he goes, Springsteen, who rocketing around the stage in a t-shirt and headband, resembles Robert De Niro in the combat scene of The Deer Hunter. This is Rock for the Steelworkers, accompanied by the opening barrage, The Battle of the Somme. The saintly Rebecca met me with a small pouch of cotton for my ears, she explained. She thinks I'm a poor specimen. I read this. It was hilarious. You did basically, read it? Okay. Yeah, okay. Basically, I, I don't even know if that's like, pertinent. He, he, he essentially never been to a rock concert before and was like... It was just kind of like an orgasm He's like, I'm, I'm so out of touch, I don't even know what weed smells like in the article. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's really yeah. funny. So it's very funny. Um, I can't quite tell if he's serious or not. Apparently, some people are calling Randy Bryce the iron worker challenger to Paul Ryan. Well, Paul Ryan's not running, but challenger to the Republican-held seat in Wisconsin. The human embodiment of a Bruce Springsteen song. <laughs> I just like, it's perfect. He really is. He was, he was an iron worker and then was like, fuck this, I'm running for office. Yeah, and he's very cool. In, uh, in talking about campaign music, and we're kind of leaving out a huge chunk of history with all the kind of uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy stuff that was used before, you know, 1910. And all. I, I wrote a, down a lot of the history, and I, I'd like to read it oh, so that, it's, that uh, would be great. it wasn't yeah, a waste of my time. That because then I, I have – I don't want to just focus <laughs> no, on now. I've got a really good chunk I on stuff going on right that. now. So let's, let's hear some yeah. of the background. All right. Well, I, well, I, I read basically the, the general history. Oh, but I didn't tell you what the – I, I didn't talk about the, the second category, which is music that doesn't have oh my God. the campaign's title. <laughs> or the, the, the it was all a tangent. It was all a tangent. <laughs> we haven't even talked about a whole topic? Go ahead. What's the second category? Music that... You no, know, Inception was the sequel to that. We didn't even that. talk about it. <laughs> we didn't even talk about that whole topic. Well, no, you know, we got, we got sidetracked because I, I was... Music that doesn't use their name. No, well, he did go through use the name. Well, I he did. I went he through said Ted Ted Taft I went through, on a oh, raft right, right, right. Taft. 
So music that doesn't use their name. Music that doesn't. Okay, okay. So my understanding that until 1972, most songs had the campaign's name in the title, right? And were composed or at least altered for the campaign. So like I like Ike. Right. Yeah, I right. like Ike was composed yeah. for the campaign, but most of the I, I think at least half the songs up until then were would fall under the category of contrafactum. What's contrafactum? Contrafactum. It's that thing where you take your dick. No, you're it's, thinking of counterterrorism. Right. You take your dick and you make a movie about bomb diffusers. Wait, that's the hurt yeah. locker. That's it's, contraception. <clears throat> it's when you see those guys in Penn Station with the M16s and you say, you want to see my penis? <laughs> <laughs> but contrafactum is where you set new lyrics to an existing song. So a lot of songs before 1972, definitely before 1900, were, were not original. So earlier on, it was common practice to just write new lyrics about a campaign to, like, the Star Spangled Banner. So John Adams' 1800 re-election campaign song, Adams and Liberty, was traditionally sung to the Star Spangled Banner. Yankee Doodle or Hail Columbia, it was like songs like that. Actually, I have an old newspaper here called uh, The Old Soldier. This is... Uh, I think also, this is a- that thing where you take your dick. <laughs> and... You're thinking of Soldier Boy. <laughs> um, you ever, uh, you ever, thanks for keeping me bed, safe, sir. You ever try The Old Soldier? <laughs> what? You ever, uh, in bed, you ever try The Old Soldier? <laughs> it just seems like someone breaks a hip. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you, to make an omelet, right? <laughs> like, oh, I did the old soldier last night. I totally threw out my back. <laughs> okay, no, I, so I, I have an I have an issue of the old soldier. For, I think this is a, a local uh, Illinois paper. So this is from May twenty sixth, eighteen forty, and in this is like five pages just um, describing. A campaign event that's coming to town that you can attend because also it's it's 1840 you don't have a lot to do you're a farmer all of your kids died of consumption last week and that's true though. and that's what true. are you gonna you're gonna go into town and see this campaign event so campaign events were were crazy they had giant crowds and this is true <laughs> literally a circus mm-hmm. and in these five pages are two sets of lyrics to two different songs so the first the first song is called The Soldier of Auld Lang Syne to the tune of Auld Lang Syne. Happy so New Year. So you, you read this article, you read all the lyrics, and then when you show up to the event and people are singing the song, you know the lyrics. Oh, that's nice. So wow, that's kind of convenient. <laughs> Clever. It's easier to appreciate a song when you understand the lyrics. Mm-hmm. But that, I think Man. that goes back to our first, uh, our first Not podcast. Not lyrics. Look, that's a second callback. Opera the, translations? Boonies. The, the second tune is um, Tip a Canoe Song to the tune oh, of, yeah. of Rosin the Bow. Do you know the tune Rosin the Bow? No. I, I don't. don't. I don't either. No. Um, but I read about this many times in trying to find out about campaigning. So 1840. And Turner 2. And Tyler 2. Oh, Tyler 2. Sorry. Turner. Tur- what the fuck am I thinking? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll see myself out. <laughs> <laughs> William Henry... William Henry Harrison. Oh, 
I know. Well, what was Tyler's let, first? Let me, Tyler. Uh, John Tyler. John Tyler, right. So William Henry Hamm. This is the. Harrison's eighth. the one who died like five days in office because he made a long speech and it was raining. Well, oh, supposedly, even though it's yeah. not actually true. Yeah. Okay. So 1840. 1840 is basically the 1984 of 1840. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to read, read you a little bit of Tippecanoe's song. Tippecanoe song. This is not Tippecanoe and Tyler 2, which is like the actual famous song. This is just Tippecanoe's song to the tune of Rosin the Bow. So just try to have that playing in your Rosin the Bow antiquated you head. Take your dick. <laughs> <laughs> This is this is my favorite. This is my favorite lyric. Also, these songs w- were interminable. They were so long. There were so many lyrics. But this well, you is my have f- to have a verse long enough where if your carriage ride was delayed by like nine hours because you were changing the wagon wheel, that people would have enough to sing. <laughs> we didn't feed the cult this morning. We got we. <laughs> This is my favorite line from this song. Come all ye pukes of Missouri and join with the suckers so true and give up your gold Benson folly to go for old Tippecanoe. What the hell does that mean? Now imagine if Hillary Clinton had called Missouri a bunch of pukes. That's... That's Come on, you pukes. Are you sure it's pu- pronounced pukes? I think it meant something like different puke, back puke, in the day. Pukes, pukes, pukey. You really, it just says pukes? Can we get it's an etymology? That is ridiculous. <laughs> what does that mean? Come all ye pukes. No. Here goes the sucker delegation. We're, no. we're all of the indigo blue, bound for the Springfield Convention to vote for old Tippecanoe. So Tippecanoe was William Harry, Henry Harrison's nickname because he helped win the battle, battle of Tippecanoe, of Tippecanoe oh. in Indiana. Yeah. That should give you an idea of what people were reading at that time and expecting from a campaign event and how they were expecting to participate in a campaign event. It's it, it's not like it is today where you can be totally checked out. You know, if you're particularly involved, you might show up. But in in rural Indiana, if a campaign was coming through town, you knew about it. Well, this is interesting. Speaking of campaign events, the last type of campaign song that I kind of thought of was the ones used at rallies nowadays, which is kind of what the Tippecanoe song was. Mm -hmm. And now it's gotten really interesting because it's turned into these kind of repurposed fight songs of sorts from sort of the pop catalog. It's very interesting and you can get a lot of insight into who the people showing up at these rallies are. And also, well, it can leave a lot of questions as to who's making these playlists. Uh, And it also overlaps a lot with these disputes about who's allowed to use whose music in political events. The shining example of misuse and abuse of music in the last few years is, of course, the man himself, Donnie Two Scoops, the Donwald, the male with the flaxen hair. Our Our big boy. A bouncing... Man baby. Bouncing man baby. The number of artists who have filed cease and desist complaints against the Trump campaign 
is really astounding. The problem is that for campaign rallies, essentially the way this works is that all you have to do to use any music you want is to pay a fee to a composer or publisher organization, namely ASCAP or BMI, which are the two biggest ones. Any artists you listen to ranging from Leonard Bernstein to uh, Kendrick Lamar to uh, Lady Gaga, Tony Bennett, anybody, they all belong to one of these organizations, anyone who writes music. And if you pay your those fees, you don't have to worry about it. You can use the music as every, however you want. In campaign ads... Then it becomes, then you need the artist's permission because you are, I think you're kind of imposing context and meaning upon the, the work. Well, I think it's, I think it's just different using it in a fixed piece of media rather than playing it at a live event where you walk on stage. Because I know that right. like yes. artists can send cease and desist letters or, or Brian May can send a cease and desist letter to Trump because he used We Are the Champions when mm-hmm. he walked on at the, at the RNC. But I don't think he technically has to stop. Sometimes they do. There are laws that, that you, you can choose to try to use in order to sue the person using using the song. But for the most part, if they if they paid the fees, they only have to decide... How, how severe the Twitter backlash is for them using, using the music. So I want to run through a couple of the disputes. And to my point from before, Michael, I want you to gauge just how tone-deaf, colorblind these choices in music are to begin with. What's the scale? One to ten? One to five? Let, maybe we'll go on, hmm. maybe we'll go on one to five. Could we make like a, a scale of... Michael reactions. Maybe we can get game show music in on this again. What's yeah. a, what? What is the range of? I don't. What was? I what don't know. You up no to you. reaction to maximum reaction. Okay. Well, I'm gonna run a few of these by you, and we're gonna see what happens. I'm gonna, I understand. I'm what gonna you're read. Doing now. You're some trying to cho- calibrate my reaction. And again, yeah, I'm just trying to give the, our listenership mm-hmm. a good read on where on the scale. The the more that I can't complete a full sentence is the more angry than there I we go okay so again just to reiterate these are all songs used by specifically the trump campaign and also all songs that warranted a cease and desist from the artist okay okay number mm-hmm. one i'm doing these out of order because i just wrote them down as i found mm-hmm. them twisted sister we're not gonna take it what the fuck to me that one makes a little bit of sense because all these old fogies are like we're not the only people who have any power anymore but that's the type of music that um, they would have also complained about being too loud oh exactly and it's also uh, a band that's entirely in drag yeah it's like what twisted sister that's distracting number two no I just didn't know what happened number two this probably should have been number one Neil Young rocking in the free world yeah he's targeting his, I mean, he's his, trying to his, be his like, age yeah, demo blah, yeah blah blah okay now we're getting to the good stuff. This one, he, this is, I want you to picture, he's at the RNC and he walks out to this. I think he walked out to this. The Rolling Stones. You can't always get what you want. What? Does that, how does it even fucking apply? <laughs> we can't always get what Which would seem more like a complaint. In really. the context of Donald Trump, it sounds like someone's getting assaulted. Yeah, or like he's just... Please please don't touch my breast, Donald. You can't always get what you want. (laughs) I 
just don't, but I don't even understand the, like, where they're even trying to go with I don't know. It makes no sense. Again, these are mystifying. They make no sense. What the fuck? The Rolling Stones filed not one, but two cease and desist (laughs) claims against the Trump campaign. Now we're getting to some, some choices that, from our perspective, are kind of on point. Again, the Rolling Stones. Sympathy for the devil. What? <laughs> what the fuck is that even doing there? What does that even mean? I don't know. Why they they, they want to let him use that one. They want to let him use it. He's the what devil. on earth are people... Okay, now we're, we're getting to some of the silly ones. This one becomes appropriate in, uh, in retrospect. Sir Elton John. Oh... Rocket Man. No. <laughs> Sir Elton John no. filed a cease and desist against the Trump campaign for use of Rocket Man. Why? As in Little Rocket Man. <laughs> the great leader, Kim Jong-un. Oh, oh, oh Wait, was that God. supposed to be what it was in reference to? No, it hadn't happened yet oh, for two years. It's just very funny. That one's fine. He's just using music that people like. But, yeah, I mean, but that's still... It's very funny in retrospect. It's a random but, uh, thing. Now, okay, one yeah. more, similarly, also by... Michael, now you're back on your rating scale. Okay. Are you ready? I don't know. Am I? From Sir Elton John. Yeah. Don't say it. Tiny Dancer. Ooh, it sounds like he's talking about his peen. It sounds a lot like he's talking about his hands. His peen. Some his, pe- peen his, pe- his, peen, his peen meat. Donald Trump has tiny hands, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so perfect. Conservatives great. love saying sir. That That's is true. great. <laughs> Some... Groping headlights on the highway. <laughs> in, in all... Uh, Transparency? Transparency, thank you. I thought of the tiny hands line ahead of time, but I riffed groping headlights. That was good. That's very good. You didn't have to tell any of us I'm proud of that. Okay, there's a couple more. Okay. Maybe there's just one more. There's one more. The creme de la creme. You're going to kill me. This is a a cease and desist filed against the Trump campaign from uh, R.E.M., Led by the wonderful Michael Stipe. If it's the one I think it is, I'm going to die. I shit you not. I'm going to die. It's I'm the end die. of the world I as we know I, well, it. I, 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 I have a feeling and I have no words. Actually used by Trump campaign at rallies. Actually had to be told not to use that by the artist. I, I have nothing to say. You, that is absolutely you, think asinine. Whoosh. Why would you pick that song? Some of some of it's these. It's too on point. Some of the titles are so such like obvious gaffes. You'd think the artist would want them to keep using them. Yeah, I like know. like yeah. Please keep talking about how this is the end of the world as you know it. Because you know, yeah. I don't know why. I I don't understand. It's so strange. But I, I could see you also don't want your any associate like you know what I'm saying like I can see them not wanting to be associated now, in any way believe it or not this isn't the weirdest that the Trump campaign music got I just limited that to cease and desist happily oh. this next little bit of info brings us into classical music okay which oh. is what the core of our listenership all two of them want to be hearing about <laughs> uh, and so 
No, come on. There are three of There's them. Three. It There's sucks. Three. So we'll talk about my mom and dad that okay, way. Okay, fine. Yeah. In 2016, there was a lot of stuff about music that the different candidates were using. And Bernie was kind of catering to the younger set and the older set at the same time by like alternating back and forth in his place between Vampire Weekend and Simon and Garfunkel. It was <laughs> <laughs> just like, did not gel, apparently. <laughs> Hillary was using lots of like, Basically just going with the absolute safest, most peppy choices you can, mm-hmm. with in, like Happy by Pharrell oh, so it's like, and then Katy Perry oh, stuff yeah. and that kind of... And, and, and Fight Song. Yeah. Oh, now, yeah, yeah, what's yeah. really interesting is the, terrible song. the Trump music used all the songs we just discussed, but more on topic for us, used the following, which I just find <laughs> fascinating. I don't even know where to start. There's three there's three of them that are really funny. He's shown kind of a, a notable enjoyment of really heart on your sleeve Broadway ballads specifically by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Excuse me, <laughs> sir. Andrew Lloyd Webber because we're honoring knighthoods on this episode. <laughs> sir Andrew. Sir Andrew. Specifically Memory from Cats was used mm-hmm. as campaign rally music. Wait, are you serious? Memory, All Alone in the Moonlight. I'm making that up. No. There's I'm, no way. I No, I found the, pl- this is the playlist from <laughs> the Trump rallies. What? Someone went and record, like noted all the songs that were in use Jesus to pump the crowd up. Christ, that's Memory not- from Cats was a regular. It is not pumpy up music. Oh, it gets weirder. Very appropriate for this spooky, spooky episode of ours. From Phantom of the Opera, music of the night before Trump rallies. <laughs> what the hell is happening at these things? And perhaps this, this one is not Broadway. Now shifting, but very on topic for us. Uh, apparently, at some point during all these rallies, the Trump campaign was working in Nessun Dorma. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't have a pun about Vintero, but I wish I did. I just don't. I just. It's so bizarre. It's going to get us nowhere. So, what have we learned today? Uh, I feel like I've learned a lot. I didn't know much about the history and all the like kind of weirdness surrounding a lot of the, <laughs> the choices in music i knew yeah. i found out a lot of the you know stuff about the controversies between musicians and the politicians <laughs> but what's more important is like talking about all the selection stuff do you feel a little bit more excited to go vote and be a part of the whole thing no oh, i've been excited what you don't want to go vote no i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna go vote good everyone needs to go vote mm-hmm no, no. Because it's okay if we say everyone because the more people that go out to vote, the more Democrats end up winning. We that is that is that is true. But I also I, do you really think our listenership makes is all twenty seven people? Do you think there are any of them are Republicans? No. And there there are twenty seven people uh amongst all the episodes that have been published. My old roommate's parents might hear this at some point. And I think they're about the extent of our Republican listenership. Why why, why do you think people don't vote? I, I, I see I see a lot of people ranting on Facebook. I don't care why people don't if, vote. If I'm you don't vote, to, it's because you suck. What incentive can we give people to go vote? Oh, I don't think any Doing any on this podcast. Duty. Even if we can get 20 people out of our 27 listeners out there to vote, it makes a difference. What can we do? Free t-shirts? We don't have t-shirts. If we can we make know, them. 
How would we know if they voted? They'll tell us. Do you have to show us the sticker? I don't care. Go vote. It's really fucking important this year, especially if you're a goddamn musician. I mean, Christ. You need the this freaking the New York Council for the Arts actually getting money for you. Uh, I would I would take a lot of issue with that. I know, but I'm just saying. My point is, go fucking vote. It's really important. Remember, remember the sixth of November. It's gonna be fun. Oh yeah, they do say that in the movie. Well, it's fifth in the movie. What oh, movie? Oh well, goddamn! Vendetta. Yeah, they go blow up Parliament. We won't do that, but hopefully we'll get Donald Trump thrown out on his ass. Maybe even put in prison. That'd be great. Mm -hmm. Keeping that in the episode. Let's get ourselves on a list. Let's get on a list. No? Okay. What kind of list? I don't know. Like someone's watching us. It's better than our podcast listenership. (laughs) The FBI is going to be listening to our podcasts. (gasps) They probably already are. If the Democrats take the House and the Senate, the three of us will compose a campaign song with every subscriber's name in it. For who? I don't care. <laughs> well, it's it's going to be fun. a really easy project. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's make sure a blue wave happens. That's the best. That's it. Right That's there. the one. This week, I get to sit down with composer Jason Eckhart. Jason teaches at the CUNY Graduate Center. He's written for International Contemporary Ensemble, the Jack Quartet. He's been awarded fellowships from Guggenheim, Rockefeller, the American Academy of Arts and Letters. We cover a pretty good distance today. Jason is very articulate and insightful. He speaks refreshingly candidly about not just uh, politics and music, but careers in music and, and music institutions. So without any more delay, we give you Jason Eckhart. Hello? Hello, can you hear me? I can. Hey, Jason, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm well, I'm well. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. What have you been up to since I last saw you? How's everything going? Uh, it's going fine. Um, you know, I mean, I've been obviously really involved with the uh, election coming up on Tuesday. So doing a lot of canvassing, postcard writing and, uh, you know, working on the <laughs> campaigns up here in upstate where we're in a swing district. So it's uh, been a very nerve wracking, um, but in certain <laughs> ways, very rewarding <laughs> activity, um, which hasn't been great for composing. But uh, hopefully after <laughs> November 6, things will resume. Who's who's the nominee again? The person you voted for in the primary did not make it, right? That's right. Um, so the nominee is a guy named Antonio Delgado. It's been a particularly ugly race because he's an African-American running in a primarily rural white district. So uh, the super PACs have been really hammering away on the racist, he's not one of us, you know, get this like New York, you know, rapper out of our uh, neighborhood and let us go back to, you know, uh, hunting and four wheeling. <laughs> <laughs> is it is he actually a rapper? Well, he had a very he he had a very brief career as a rapper ten years ago. Of course, they're using that as evidence that you know he's this urban other that's being helicoptered in from Manhattan to ruin our country ways of life. 
helicoptered in by who? Because I, I assume he's not taking any PAC money. Or yeah, is helicoptered he? in by, you know, the, the no, he's not taking any PAC money. You know, the whole Schumer, Pelosi, cabal is going to take <laughs> over our lives and steal our guns and confiscate our property. And, you know, we'll be in Soviet era bread lines before we know it if we don't uh, vote Republican, that kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, those people are so funny to me because it has nothing to do with any of the claims that you could substantiate about Pelosi or or Schumer or Clinton, Obama, whoever. Yeah, I read Um, uh, an interesting study a few weeks ago that said that while 40 percent of people say that they are completely against uh, any public assistance, that 90 percent of them take public subsidy in one way or another. You know, if you if you talk to people about individual things, most people are, are pretty liberal, maybe maybe even socialists. Everyone wants someone to take care of the roads and make sure the streets are paved and make sure the the streetlights turn on. Right. Well, I mean, they want some government. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> you know, and they want their Social Security checks and, and so on. You know? no, no, no. And they all want their Social Security checks. But at the same time, um, understand that we can't afford Social Security. And so it should be abolished, except... I still want my check. Well, that's the thing that's weird is that, you know, when I've had arguments with conservatives about this stuff, they're like, oh, well, Social Security and Medicare are scams anyway. It's like, no, it's like you you paid in the money. <laughs> like, that's your money they're stealing. <laughs> like, you understand that came out of your paycheck and payroll taxes. Oh, that thing's been going bust forever. It's a good thing. Get the government out of our lives. It's like, uh, I, I, I give up. <laughs> and, and it never occurs to them the irony of someone running for a high position in government telling them that they need to get the government out of their lives. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you're you're out canvassing all the time, writing postcards. What what happens to, to the composing? Yeah, I, I schedule time for it. I'm in the city uh, a couple days a week to teach, and then I'm up here the rest of the time. So most of my canvassing happens during the weekend um, because that's when you can catch as many people as possible home. I'm going out tomorrow and then again on Monday for one last push. You know, hopefully we'll hit different people and different issues. You know, until until the election's over, composing, I think, is probably on hold. But now that we're in sort of, you know, code red territory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's uh, what's the polling like? It's right down the middle. Honestly, I think um, no matter what happens, it's going to be very, very close. And I think it's basically just going to boil down to turnout. If people can come out that maybe, you know, haven't voted this past election or haven't voted in a midterm before, I think those people are going to make a huge difference. But like I say, I think it's really going to boil down to turnout. I see a lot of energy on both sides. So it's it's going to be a nail biter, I think. What, what do you think is going to happen in 2020? Do you, you, you think Trump has a good shot of being reelected or you think the Dems will actually put someone forward who uh, has a shot? That's a really good question. And all of my predictions in this category have all been wildly <laughs> incorrect. So I'm a, <laughs> a little hesitant to uh, speculate. But um, I think a lot of it depends on, you know, sort of how things go in the next two years. I mean, whether the um, the House is able to be recaptured by the Democrats, um, whether, you know, Trump will flame out further, uh, what happens with the Mueller investigation. I mean, there's just so many unknowns. And then, as you allude to, uh, I think it also depends a lot on who the um, Democratic candidate is. And I think if we can get um, a progressive candidate in, First of all, all the Dems are going to vote for that candidate, no matter who they are anyway. But it's getting sure. those sort of moderates and undecideds to actually come out to the poll and, you know, believe that there's a possibility for making a change. So 
So vote no, in those I, primaries. No. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I agree. I think that's exactly what's going to happen is they're going to they're going to take someone like Booker or Kamala Harris or I've, I've even heard rumors of um, Michael Bloomberg as a Democrat. I think he, he changed his registration. Now he's now he's a Democrat. I think they're they're going to they're going to do exactly what everyone hated so much about Hillary Clinton in 2016. And they're just they're going to blow it. Yeah, that's that's my real fear. Let me, let me let me try to tie this in with with music a little bit. Um. Oh, yeah, this is a this is a music podcast, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Election countdown with Jason Eckhart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll have to get some live coverage going. <laughs> yeah, right. That'd exactly. Be, that, <laughs> Reporting from the polls. We have no access to anything, but uh, <laughs> any special information. I saw that you wrote a you wrote a piece based on one of Bush's State of the Union addresses. Well, indirectly, um, I wouldn't say indirectly. It, it was uh, it was based on it um, in the sense that, you know, I used any of the actual text or anything like that. That was the State of the Union address whereby he claimed that Saddam Hussein had uh, acquired uh, uranium. The head of the CIA had briefed him and told him that this uh, was not the case, and he went ahead and said it anyway. So, of course, this was the drumbeat to try and lead the United States into Iraq. And that for me, that sort of, you know, bold faced lie, which in the current environment seems quite quaint by comparison, was <laughs> something that to me was just beyond the pale and completely outrageous. The title of the piece uh, is 16, and that refers to 16 words that should have been excised from the State of the Union address. So it was not direct in the sense that I was using any of the speech or those 16 words as source material, but. It was my sort of reflection on that moment where a huge shift in me took place and I felt like I needed to deal with that and express my feelings about that somehow musically. What, what was the piece written for? What was the instrumentation? It was for flute and string trio. And oddly enough, um, the flute part has a lot of vocalization. And many people have asked me if I actually used the speech in a... Uh, dissected way. What's your relationship with text and, and, and music? Had you considered just setting some of the text as it, was, as it was spoken, or that would never have occurred to you to make it a vocal piece? Yeah, it didn't occur to me. I mean, um, to me, that actually seemed a bit pedantic and uh, too mm. literal. Um, I wanted something to, I, I wanted the piece to be a bit more subtle. Even though politics have played into my pieces quite a bit, I never try and have any kind of direct references in terms of people speaking or uh, text in the pieces that are reflecting any kind of political position or view. It's more of an abstract expression, usually, of a kind of feeling or atmosphere around that subject matter uh, that I try to convey. That's obviously not to conceal a point of view. That's just because the uh, the alternative would be so on the nose. Yeah, that's how I feel. I mean, you know, I could yeah. I could have named that flute and string trio piece "Don't Invade Iraq" or you know "Bush <laughs> Lies" or something like that. That, as you say, seemed a little bit sort of too on the nose to me. I can be politically active and communicate very directly my feelings and try to persuade people using, you know, traditional tactics. But when it comes to my music, I wanted it to be more subtle. 
there have been some pieces that are a, li- a little more literal. So, for example, I wrote a piece for String Quartet, which deals with enhanced interrogation. And the piece opens with a series of irregular, loud, short chords that are either coordinated or sometimes coordinated and sometimes not coordinated with blasts of light. And this was inspired actually mm. by an interrogation technique um, that has been used by the United States and, and Israel and other places. So that that was a quite literal sort of translation in, in that case. And, uh, you know, I, I talk about that in the program notes. And we also have to uh, have an announcement before the concert um, so that anyone who has any kind of light sensitivity or is prone to seizures or has a pacemaker mm. or other health concerns can uh, can leave the uh, leave the hall because the flashes are so bright that even if you close your eyes, you can still see them. So once you're oh, in wow. the performance, you, you you can't escape. So br- bringing a taste of Guantanamo Bay to the concert hall. Exactly. Who, who um, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, who, who else do you feel like is doing really great work sort of fusing uh, new music and, and politics? Do you, do you think it's being done enough or do you think there's a sort of tendency to um, shy away from it or, or play it safe or not fuck up your career by pissing someone off who might be a Republican who might also be able to give you some money down the line? Well, I mean, honestly, I don't see a lot of my colleagues um, engaging politically in their music. Uh, One person who I think uh, does it very well is Lewis Nielsen. Um, He's been a huge inspiration to me and I think is a a wonderful composer. uh, I really don't see a lot of people doing it and doing it effectively beyond, you know, just sort of titles. Now, there may be a lot of works that I'm I'm missing. That's, That's entirely possible. I think a lot of my colleagues are just sort of bearing down and kind of concentrating on their music as a way to uh, escape the political circus that's happening right now. What is your process? I mean, if you're planning for a day of writing, you know, do you uh, set aside five, six hours or you starting uh, starting at midnight and just uh, drinking as much coffee as you can and, until you pass out? Or I'm, I'm, I'm really curious what's I used to be a real night owl, and I used to start um, composing usually around eight at in the evening and finish around two in the morning or so. And uh, that was uh, when I was in my early twenties. One uh, summer, I did a lot of traveling, and my internal clock was all screwed up. So I started getting up early instead of sleeping in. You know, figured well, I should I should try and compose something. I mean, I'm awake, and I started composing in the morning. By the end of the day, I realized hey, I have my whole evening free. This is really wonderful, actually. And I could get to lunchtime and say, hey, half my workday is done. This is great. And so since then, I've been a, a morning uh, composer. That first hour um, that I compose in the morning, which usually starts at around eight o'clock in the morning, is my best hour because I feel freshest and you know uh, my concentration is, is focused. And uh, I feel that if I do it first thing before all of the sort of anxieties and doubts that I have about the piece are <laughs> too firmly lodged in my in my imagination, um, I can get a better and more objective read on how the piece might be sounding to someone else other than myself. After that, I usually uh, break up the day into about four or five blocks of composing. And usually those blocks last anywhere from about 45 to 75 minutes, something like that. Up to about an hour and a half, that's kind of my maximum. And then my concentration is just completely shot. As far as the uh, actual process goes, I always write pieces uh, from the beginning to the end. So it's always this kind of incremental process of just adding a few more bricks to the building until it's complete. 
you mentioned anxiety. How much how much anxiety comes with each piece? Do you hate the music you you write? <laughs> <laughs> Are you nervous before um, premieres or performances? Just thinking this this is kind of a clunker. I wish um, <laughs> I wish this weren't about to happen. Well, it go it ebbs and flows. Um, I mean, uh, I take a long time to write music. Usually, I take about a year to write a piece. So by the time R- I get regardless to, of length, or? Uh, no, I mean, um, I yeah. Mean. If I'm writing a, a, a three minute solo piece, I mean, obviously that's a <laughs> that's a that's a faster job. As I'm going, I mean, I have to be confident that what I'm doing sort of meets my you know personal standards for something I would actually want to go out in the world. So I know on some level that it's it's good and. I'm also sort of composing for an audience of one because I don't presume to understand or know or want to second guess about anyone else's desires or tastes and about how a piece of music should sound or how it should progress and so on. And then I usually work pretty closely with the musicians leading up to the performance. I often work repeatedly with a small group of musicians who I have an intimate relationship with. So by the time we get to the actual performance, I really have gotten a good sense of everything, you know, all the changes that I think I need to make and feel pretty confident. Uh, it's still, you know, a nerve wracking experience. My wife, who's not a musician, always asks why we don't listen to my music when we're hanging out together. <laughs> and I try to explain to her it's not really fun for me to listen to my own music, which uh, she still, I don't think, completely understands. But I do understand that, you know, there are some things in my pieces that you know, I'm not 100% happy with or I wish I could do better. I sometimes make changes if they're not too drastic, but. I also feel that there's a certain point when I have to let it go. When I think about a composer like Boulez, who basically was rewriting or continuing to write most of his compositions for the rest of his life, I really don't want to be like that. And I honestly (laughs) think in the case of Boulez, the compositions generally got worse (laughs) as they got revised and time went on. But but have you gone back and done some revisions? Have you have you ever just rewritten a piece that maybe you wrote 10 years ago? No, that would never cross my mind. Uh, if, if, if I was that unhappy with it, I'd just pull the piece. So there's definitely been pieces that I've pulled retroactively. Um, it's only a couple, but there, there are pieces that I just felt that I, I, I just aren't representative and I'd rather have people play other music of mine if, if they're going to play it at all. But let me ask, you said you're, other than that, you're writing for an audience of one. Do you write with only yourself in mind? Is there an expectation that other people should be enjoying it? Or are you really just thinking, what's going to make me happy in this process? That's basically how I feel. Um, You know, I mean, of course everyone wants to be loved. And so, you know, I mean, I, 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 it does mean something to me when other people listen to my music and, and get something out of it or connect with it in some way. So I don't mean to suggest that that's not important to me. And, you know, that, that's, that's not to say I'm so, uh, you know, self-absorbed that I don't care about anybody else. But I just think that music that I try to write and also honestly, music of composers and musicians, I really admire really had to kind of go beyond what their immediate predecessors were doing and their contemporaries were doing and think about something that was so deeply personal and expressive that I don't think anybody could have predicted it. And that means you need to kind of think about exactly what you want to express and not try and think about anyone else. And I think this is true of John Coltrane as much as it's true of Beethoven, as much as it's true of Schoenberg. One really needs to be wary of oneself when they think too much about trying to appeal 
to someone else or, or some something else or at worst, you know, some sort of funding body or something like that or, or uh, admissions panel in order to try and, you know, make music that will get them somewhere or get them something. Do you see people trying to conform, you know, eschewing the idea that they should be writing uh, music for themselves because they, as a composer, are the product and all they could ever do is just be the best them they can be as opposed to trying to rip off someone else? You know, one of the things that, you know, troubles me is that I've come across young composers who look at a school they want to go to or a competition they're going to enter or a group they want to play their music. And they say, oh, well, you know, they, they, they only play this, these kinds of composers or this kind of music. And maybe I should write something more like that because, you know, that will, you know, get me more performances or get me uh, this prize or into this program or whatever. And um, I think that's really sad. And I think that um, hopefully they would be encouraged by their mentors or colleagues or just through their own self-reflection to eschew these ideas that, you know, one has to be a certain way or write music a certain way in order to to, to get commissions or, or get admission to programs and so on. I don't see the point in trying to play it so safe in a field that's ultimately so unforgiving. It, it, it seems like if you're going to take the risk of trying to be a musician, you should just go for it. Anyway, I had a teacher tell me once, oh, you should write for a women's choir. Colleges always need pieces for a women's choir. You can totally get performances that way. Like, right. yeah, but I don't want to. It's like, if I'm going to do something I, I don't want to do, I, why don't I just do something I don't want to do that makes money? Exactly. And, and that's a point that I, that I make to my students all the time, um, which is that if, if you really want to figure out how to appeal to people, like you're in the wrong line of music, I mean, you know, at least go out and like fund your retirement. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Do you think the institutions sort of, uh, demand this, that if, if you're, if you're in the game of applying to all the grants and competitions and young artist programs and, and schools, that it seems like you can't really escape the institutions if you want to if you want to be somebody who actually gets performances. I think there's an implicit suggestion that certain schools or certain institutions cater to certain types of musical styles more than others. Uh, mm. I mean, that being said, one of my most powerful uh, mentors, Jonathan Kramer, wrote music that was nothing like mine at all, but was an um, incredibly valuable resource for me as, as, as a teacher. And taught me not just a lot about uh, composing and music, but taught me a lot about how to be a teacher. So uh, I do think that there's a lot of possibilities from learning from people that might not necessarily be right in your stylistic wheelhouse. How important do you think it is that people follow that path of, I don't know, the, the, the competitions in the schools? And how vital do you think it is that everyone go out and, and get a doctorate? Uh, I don't think it's vital at all. And one of the reasons is, is that uh, for one thing, when I ask a lot of young composers about why they want to uh, go to graduate school or get a doctorate, they say, well, I really want to teach. Well, those jobs just don't really exist. Of the freshly minted doctorates in composition, just a small fraction of a percentage actually get tenure track or even decent adjunct jobs, which I liken to more or less, you know, modern slave labor. I really discourage composers from getting doctorates purely because they think that this is going to be their ticket to financial freedom, steady employment, you know, and so on. There are a lot of great things that can happen in doctoral programs. I mean, obviously, if you get to work with great mentors, you can learn a ton. You get to be in a community where, you know, you're around peers that I one would hope are in 
encouraging and inspiring. And you have institutional access to things. So if you have, uh, you know, an orchestra that reads your work, that's great. If you have guest ensembles that are coming in and playing your music, that's great. Uh, and, uh, you know, access to things uh, like cheap health care and so on, um, some fellowship money. You know, all those things are really good things. But if you just want to write music, I often say to a lot of composers that the most important thing they can do is to be active in their own musical communities and build networks of connections um, at the grassroots community level and start making music from there. You know, being able to work really closely with other like-minded musicians who wanted to do cool music is exactly where I think a lot of young composers should be. And when composers don't go to concerts or talk to players or hang out with other composers, I'm really puzzled. Do you think maybe a lot of people who go to school for, for music maybe shouldn't have? And if they had another option in front of them, they could just as easily have taken that. I mean, I will say that, you know, of the people that I went to graduate school with, at least half of them are no longer in music at all. Uh, people who have, who have doctorates in music. Yeah. You're yeah. saying. Because, you know, at, at some point they needed to pay the bills and the academic job wasn't forthcoming. I sort of consider myself to be kind of the very last generation for whom an academic job that one could have for the rest of their lives was something of an option. I mean, it certainly wasn't easy. I mean, it took me eight years, uh, nine years from graduating to uh, my first tenure track position. So um, I hung in there. And uh, when uh, I did get my first tenure track job, I thought everything was going really great. And a year later, the financial crisis took place and uh, academia changed really radically after that. Adjunct labor force became a really primary focal point of a lot of departments. And after weathering the financial crisis and finding out that they could have a viable workforce for a fraction of the price with no benefits, this just became the norm. And as a result of that, you see people being exploited um, constantly by this new model and tenure track positions being greatly reduced both in private and public institutions. Right. If you look at what's happening at um, at Columbia now, I don't, I don't know where they are with the push to uh, unionize adjuncts. But I, I know the uh, the president of the college has gone to great lengths to try to stymie those efforts. Yeah, and that's, and that's Lee Bollinger, mm -hmm. our sort of progressive bright light, you know, that was uh, supposed to be hired on the strength of these shared values that apparently he doesn't have. Where I teach at CUNY, we're pushing in our next contract negotiation with our union for $7,000 salaries for each class that's taught. Now, that's a rather lavish price compared to what most adjuncts make, but still incredibly lower than any full-time professor, a tenure track or tenured professor would make. Most of the people who teach adjunct classes basically have to wait until a few months before the class runs to know if they're going to be needed or not, depending on the departmental needs. So there's absolutely you know, no stability in, uh, this, uh, in this model. And that's, that's really shameful, I think. Mm. If you're a full-time adjunct, which I guess is 70% of the collegiate workforce in, in the United States, how many classes can you possibly teach? I know that many of the people who uh, do adjunct teaching also teach at multiple campuses. So 
um, you know, you might uh, be teaching one class in Brooklyn, one class in Queens, and another in Manhattan, and have to shuttle between those uh, different locations, and you know, sometimes in a single day. How many? How many is reasonable? Rather, well, is, uh, yeah, is the that's, question. That, that's a good question. Yeah, how many is reasonable? So, uh, I don't know uh, if there are limits on how many adjunct classes anyone can teach, but you know, if you're teaching on a couple of different campuses and you're teaching three or four classes a semester, I mean, that is a ton of work. You know, some of these classes can have 75 students in them. Remember the, the, the first time I was in a huge lecture class, just thinking about how much money each one of us, there were probably 150 of us in this uh, world music history class that convened at nine and was three hours long. That was probably the most miserable class I've, I've ever taken. <laughs> um, <laughs> thinking if there are 150 of us each paying uh, $1,800 a credit, however many uh tens of thousands of dollars an individual is garnering and then thinking i mean even a even a tenured professor certainly isn't making money uh, commensurate with with the fee Right. I mean, an interesting proposal that's being put forth in Massachusetts is that private universities uh, with endowments over a certain limit would actually be subject to an additional tax on those endowments, on the investments on the, in, the, in those endowments, and that that money would be used to fund community colleges and, and public institutions. So clearly, um, I'm sure they're deploying an army of lawyers to, to, to fight this. <laughs> that's the beauty of America, just endless upward mobility if you have parents who work for Goldman Sachs. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because also you've, you've had quite a bit of institutional success. You've taught at a few Ivy Leagues and you've won all the, uh, or, or many of the, the big grants and prizes and, and awards. I, I'm wondering if, if there's any internal conflict you have with with that not that any of that's bad or that i wouldn't want any of that for myself but i'm i'm curious if you've grappled with that well i would never take money from an institution that i felt was doing outright harm and i don't think those as far as I know, really exist that support the kind of music that, that we make. Um, the only time I ever um, had any inkling of something being a little sketchy was when I wrote this piece for the uh, string quartet that I mentioned earlier, which had to do with um, enhanced interrogation. That was not an idea that was in the original proposal for the grant. Um, that idea hmm. came later, before I started the piece, but between the application of the grant and receiving the grant, which I think was about a year-long period, I had the, I had the idea to do something different with the quartet, which ended up being the final concept. When the piece was completed and the commissioning organization um, and the string quartet had submitted their sort of final report before they paid out the money. They wanted to know a little bit more about this crazy idea that I had because they, I don't know <laughs> if they were worried about the fact that, you know, it was, uh, you know, going to get them into some sort of political hot water as a nonprofit and that they were be seen as being partisan or something like that. Um, I, I love that. If we take a stance on torture, we might it might be misconstrued as being partisan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I could be completely wrong about that. I mean, luckily, uh, one of the one of the folks from the string quartet called them up, and it was solved very quickly. In the case of the piece that was written concerning the 2003 State of the Union address, there was a concern on part of 
one of the presenting organizations that they didn't want to include the program note because they felt it was too partisan. They expressed this to me under the guise of the fact that they were a nonprofit and that they needed to be nonpartisan and that this might jeopardize their funding. I think that was bullshit. I think uh, it was just a personal thing that somebody um, had a problem with. And that was evidenced mm -hmm. by the fact that someone else from the organization contacted us when I and the performers expressed concern and basically said, it's fine, don't worry about it. But those are really the only two times that anything remotely political might have affected it. So if you, you won't be applying for a grant from the... Uh Dick Cheney Foundation for New Music anytime soon. Well, you know, I know everyone's really excited about the Cheney Fund <laughs> and uh, all that money that's going to be coming in from the Mercers uh, as a result. But uh, <laughs> Hey, so um, I realize I haven't asked you at all about your, uh, your very upcoming work, which is a recording with the Jack Quartet. Is that right? Is that your most recent thing? Uh, yeah, so uh, I just recorded a piece for a uh, piano quintet uh, with pianist Jason Hardink and uh, the Jack Quartet. That uh, recording, we're still not sure exactly um, where we're going to go with it. It's uh, an interesting time now as far as the recording industry is concerned, and I'm not convinced that a traditional record label might be the way to go with this recording. I'm not really sure. So oh, really, so you went you went in to record it, and it's recorded with no release in mind. Uh, no specific release in mind. Basically, my idea was to try and record. I've done um, several projects with the Jack Quartet. Our idea was to record a bunch of music with them, and also uh, record this piece that I'd written for the pianist Jason Harding, the quintet that was just recorded with Jack. During the process, I suppose just kind of figure out how we want to release it. I don't make really any money on um, these recordings anyway, um, so that it's not uh, a, a revenue stream issue. So I more concerned that people hear it and if they have easier access to it then I think all the better. I think the whole medium is changing really radically and I honestly think that record companies won't be anything like we've known them in the past. They may more be curators than anything else rather than distributors. Mm -hmm. And I also think, frankly, for the kind of music that we do, that not having a physical object, which you know needs to be at a place where one can get it, has been an amazing um, boon for us. Right. Just the the breadth of access and the immediacy of the access is um, it's amazing and how and how affordable it's become. I mean, I feel everyone's everyone's pain that ultimately the Spotify model probably is um, an incredible temptation to overcome to go and throw a. 20 bucks down on a record when you know you could have it for free on your phone right now. Exactly. I mean, yeah. since this was never an income uh, for me uh, at any point, um, it didn't really make a difference to me. Uh, but I do understand how, um, you know, a lot of great record companies are really trying to figure out how to navigate this, this new um, environment that we have that's really radically different than even just 10 years ago. On a related subject, um, my contract with my publisher is actually going to be expiring at the end of the month, and I'm not going to renew it because I feel that mm -hmm. I want to you know, basically do a pay-what-you-want model um, for my music and that a lot more people will buy it and a lot more people will be able to you know, play it and study it if they choose to using this model as opposed to the traditional publisher model. I mean, I, wow. I, see, I see the cost of buying that. a conductor score for one of my pieces, and it's, it's you know, 
if I were if I were a student, there's no way I would be able to afford it. <laughs> and uh, I just I don't know. I just there's something that's inherently wrong with that. I should also mention that my intention is to uh, take any money that anybody pays for anything and give it away. Um, I'm not trying to make more money this way. I just really want the access to be there so that anybody who goes to my website can just download whatever they want. And if they want to kick in a little bit of money that'll go to uh, help uh, animal and humanitarian causes, then great. And if not, and if they don't have the money, then that's cool too. <laughs> wow. Jason, this has been a, a, a really an incredible, illuminating conversation, but I, I think we're going to have to have to leave it there. Do you have a, you have a premiere coming up? You have some shows coming up that you could, you could mention or... One thing that I'm really excited about, we don't have a date for it yet. The piece that I mentioned earlier for the string quartet with the lighting, um, that's been an ongoing project with myself and the Jack Quartet, which turned into actually a triptych of string quartets, which can all be linked together to make one long 48-minute piece. And it was just finished, and uh, we're still figuring out where the premiere is going to be. So I'm hoping that it comes to New York very soon. We will be on the lookout for that. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for the great questions. Bye. All right. Thanks to Jason Eckhart for coming on. And now to close us out, we're going to hear a work of his called Subject, performed by the Jack Quartet.